Good morning. Good. Uh, it's good to be back after a week off. And um, I've been looking forward to being back with the good folks here in Boise and at um, All Saints. Just a quick heads up. Um, the text in the bulletin is incorrect, and that's my fault. It's probably a cut and paste error. That's error number one. Error number two is I took my eye off the email thread that sends all the proofs in, and, uh, and I could have caught that, so uh, we'll, we'll do better next time. Uh, we're going to be reading the first uh, verses of Genesis 41, and we're going to take a look at that, but first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness. I pray you would instruct us. Who are you? How can we live for you? We pray these things. That's really what we want. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Last time we left Joseph, he had just uh, helped out. Well, he helped out the cupbearer. Didn't help out the baker much. But uh, he interpreted a couple of dreams and We're picking it up, not two weeks, but two years later, and here we are. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream." So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed at the, on the same night, and he and I each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When, he told, when we told him, he interpreted the dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and then quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that you, when you hear it, a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile, and 
fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin and ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there is no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I have told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout the land of Egypt. But after them, there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and will God will shortly bring it about. Now therefore let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years and let them gather all the food these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for the food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God is? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you this, There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck And he made him ride second in his chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. And they set him over the land of Egypt. Amen. Well, as we said at the beginning, we'll be reading these long sections to learn to listen to Scripture. I'm going to add to it with a story um, about my first job, which my dad did not want me to take. I know that sounds odd, but I was in school. I just turned 16. And uh, I got a job working at Coco's. Do you know Coco's? It's like Denny's trying to be nice. And um, 
my job at Coco's during the school year was Friday and Saturday nights from 11 to 7 in the morning. And then Wednesday nights from 3 to 11. And my dad said, don't, dad, don't take that job. I was thrilled because I walked in and in like five minutes I had the job. I thought I was killing it. So my dad said, no, don't take that job. And I said, I'm going to take the job. I want my own money. He said, don't take the job. I said, I'm going to take the job. He said, okay, take the job. Um, it, the job was really, really bad. And um, the environment was really harsh. And the manager was not a good guy. And I muscled through the first weekend and the first Wednesday. And I was exhausted and stressed. And I made it through the second one. And... Uh, um, Weekend, and then I got to the next Wednesday night. It was raining, wintry night in January in St. Louis. And there's supposed to be two busboys and a dishwasher, and no one showed up but me. It was a pretty big place, and so I was bussing all the tables and washing all the dishes, and um, I quit. Like, I mean, I quit in the middle of a dishwashing cycle. I was loading the dishwasher. I don't mean I went home and quit. I mean, I quit right then. It was probably nine o'clock at night. And I shoved some dishwashers and some stuff in the dishwasher. And all I could hear was my dad saying, don't take this job. Well, young people, listen to your father. And don't be a quitter like your preacher. But I tell that story because it turned out to be more like my career than I thought it was going to be. My boss called me at home and said, well, I'm not going to be able to give you a good reference. I was like, okay. I'm probably going to be okay since no one will ever know I worked there for two weeks on my resume. It's still not in LinkedIn, by the way, if you look at my profile. <laughs> But the reason I told that story is because it's also a metaphor for the life of Joseph and really for the Christian life. Faith versus reality. Faith overcomes reality by always serving and never quitting. That's what Joseph does. Faith overcomes reality by always serving and never quitting. And that's hard to do, we understand. So let's take a look at... uh, Reality versus these dreams, and then Jake, uh, Joseph's faith versus reality. Here, this is fun uh, for me. I hope it's fun for you, but I love Hebrew narrative. I love the Bible's stories. The Bible's really the only sacred book that tells stories of this depth and length, especially the stories that are considered to be part of, uh, of a real history, but a sacred history. And so when you see the art of the Hebrew narrative and you realize uh, as you go through the story of Joseph, the idea of dreams has come up 23 times in just this section of chapters in 7 through 40, 37 through 42. So you start to say, whoa, well, you know, they're telling us something about dreams. But then you look at the art of the dreams themselves and um, it's really wonderful and magnificent. Let's, take, let's walk through all the dreams. There's been, as we've uh, studied the life of Joseph, there's been three sets of two dreams. And how do they come about? The first, or what are the, what's the subject matter or tone of each one? The first two dreams with Joseph are both positive, right? And then you get to the middle of what's happening here is this X, this chiasm in the middle of the story. You get to the middle two dreams 
What are the middle two dreams? Well, they're the baker and the cupbearer, right? So Joseph gets these two positive dreams. And then the middle two dreams, uh, they are a positive and a negative dream. The, the cupbearer's restored. And as we heard in this passage, the baker uh, is hanged. And then we get to Pharaoh's dreams. This is the third uh, set of two. And Pharaoh's um, dreams are both bad. So when you look at the, the art of the history of the story of the Bible, you can understand that God, uh, in his providence, through these dreams, a special revelation of his dreams, is telling a story about how he's propelling the purpose of the gospel in the life of his people, specifically in the life of the family of Abraham, specifically Jacob, specifically Joseph. Now, of course, Joseph's dream, and we're talking about reality versus dreams, and we're going to talk a little bit in a moment about what those dreams signify, but what we want to see now is that the dreams win, ultimately. The dreams become more profound and more compelling and more defining really, than all this real world that everybody's living in, whether they're living in the court of Pharaoh or they're living in one of his prisons. Joseph's dreams are the meta story. They're the big story. They're the compelling story. Joseph's dreams are going to come true. And it's a really a whole course of the way the gospel works. Certainly, we could look ahead for our, our Lord Jesus, our Savior. Um, he was given this profound promise and um, was sent into the depths like all the people of God are sent into the depths of this world that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, but ultimately fails us. What we need to see in these 23 references to dreams is that ultimately Joseph's dreams are going to come true. That we are given in this dream story, in this account of these six dreams in cycles, uh, in three cycles, we're being told, God is saying, this is what I'm doing. I am in control. I'm giving you a look ahead into the future or behind the veil. I want you to see that I am ruling the world. I am accomplishing my purpose. That's what these dreams are meant to serve for us. As Daniel said, God reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. And that's what we need to learn. Remember, the the one thing I want you to take away from the life of Joseph is that you need to understand the promises of God, not the providence of God. Because if you understand the promises of God, as confusing and arduous as his providence might be, you also understand that. Because God has shown you, as it were, he's shown you his dream, his vision, his purpose for you and for the world and for his church. That's what God's doing. God's dreams, as it were, God's purposes, God's providence, God's promises always drive and define and overcome what's real. And that's hard. Because in a given moment, in a given day, maybe this afternoon, this coming week, maybe you're in it right now, maybe it started a year ago and you're still struggling with it. Um, In the meanwhile... 
in the meanwhile, between all these dreams for Joseph, all this intersection with what happens when God reveals and pulls it back, uh, in, in the meanwhile, uh, it seems like reality is always winning. It's always more severe. Let's take a look at, at a review, if you will, of Jacob's and Joseph's and Rachel's and his brother's meanwhile. Jacob is still at home walking his grief to the grave. He thinks his son is dead. Uh, Rachel is filled with a mother's grief. She also thinks her son is dead. His brothers are free, and for all we can tell, they've suppressed their guilt enough to be, to be free of uh, really struggling with it. Potiphar's, Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar have moved on. They're living their best life. The baker didn't go so well for him, but the cupbearer is busy. The cupbearer is busy, and he forgot about Joseph. And Joseph is waiting, as we've said, for two full years. So when the preacher says to you that God's promise and purpose uh, will always prevail, that, that he's shown you whenever he's told you the gospel, he's shown you what's really going on and what's really going to happen and what really is, that's all very true, but you and I both understand that um, where we live in our day, boots on the ground, what's going on in our hearts and our lives and our families and our jobs and our sorrows, well, that's uh, more like the meanwhile that we've just seen. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do with that? How are you going to respond? Well, um, I don't know. Uh, you probably won't be given dreams like these dreams. Don't tell anyone in Presbytery I said probably. Okay. So, um, so what do you have? Well, you have the promise. You have the thing that these dreams are showing us is um, being unfolded despite how difficult and conflicting and hurtful is the providence of God. But what does that look like for you? Well, it, you know that you know some things about what really is. You know that the first will be last, right? If you study the gospel, if you're exploring Christianity, Jesus said the first will be last. If you watch the story of the gospels unfold, you know that Friday becomes Sunday. You know that uh, one of Jesus' servants, the Apostle Paul, said the foolish are actually the wise and that weakness is actually strength. Well, those are your dreams. Those are your interpretive tools. Those are, are what help you always serve and never quit. You are and I am, really, to put it this way, we have one job. And your one job is to always believe to the very end. That's your one job. Now from that one job, there's all manner of implications from it, but, but it's really very simple. You have one job. Believe until the moment that you die. In... Um, I guess they're making a new Matrix movie. Is that true? Did I hear that? Um, 
in the old matrix way back in the day, like 20 years ago, whatever it was, uh, Cypher is watching the screen of all this code go by. And of course, the whole world is a, is a simulation, which actually, by the way, supposedly smart people in some of our academies believe the world is a simulation, like tenured professors, but we're not going to go into that. But, um, but he's looking at all this code because they've hacked into the matrix and he's watching the whole world go by in this little, you know, screen. And he, and he says, oh, I don't even see the code anymore. He says, I just see the people. I just see what's happening. And so, okay, that's not happening. The world is not a simulation. But here's what I want you to know. You stop looking at the, at the world. You've been given the code. Have you not been given the code? Don't you know? Don't you know that nothing will separate you from the love of Christ? Not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? All these things, we are more than conquerors in all of them, Paul said, through him who loved us. For you have been told to be sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present or things to come or powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's your code. That's what you know. Stop trying to know all the other stuff. Stop trying to know what happened yesterday and what it means. Stop trying to figure out what's going to happen tomorrow and whether it will be enough. You and I, we're not even smart enough to figure out right now. You have been told that God loves you that he will not lose you, he will never leave you or forsake you, and your one job is to believe that no matter what. It's so simple. (laughs) It's so simple and so hard. You know, just because something simple doesn't mean it's easy. But at least it's simple. So how, maybe it'll help to, to see how, how this works out in Joseph's story. Because that's his one job. Joseph given this great promise when he's like 17. or like 10 or 12 years into it. And it's getting harder and harder to just hold on to that promise. Because nothing seems to be working out. Zero. Exactly zero of the promise has come true. But he doesn't quit. And what we learn is that as we move from dreams versus reality, we, we now um, can see how faith overcomes the world by always serving and never quitting. And the first thing I want us to see is, is faith just outweights everybody. After two whole years, I love that. After two whole years... Two whole years. How long before Joseph stopped thinking, well, any day now, Cupbearer's going to remember that he made a promise. As I said, Joseph was given those dreams probably 10 years ago, maybe a little more than 10 years ago, before this scene. 
Um, it's going to sojourn. Joseph's going to sojourn about 20 years before the fullness of those dreams is fulfilled. But listen to everybody else, man. Everybody else has got like, you know, the, the Pharaoh, I mean, the uh, cupbearer and the baker, they wait like three days, you know. And uh, Pharaoh, because he's Pharaoh, he gets an answer right away, you know, the, the next day. Everybody knew what was going on. Um, everybody's given uh, the resolution good or bad, of their revelation immediately. But just faith just keeps waiting. How long, O Lord, the psalmist says, how long? And God's answer is usually longer. Longer. I, I, have, I have a bad habit of scrolling through Reddit at night which is, um, you know, a waste of time. If you don't know what Reddit is, you, are, uh, you don't need to know because it was just, it's just a, a way to waste your time on your phone. So that's what Reddit is. But, but there's this place called Wall Street Bets on Reddit, and everybody was losing money about something. I, don't, I do not do investments. I, I just give the money away and hide it away and let somebody else think about that. But, um, but they were all like, when it was tanking, they were all like charging each other. Don't sell. Hold on. It's going to come back, you know. And I don't know if it came back or not. I don't care. I don't understand it. But I do know this. That's my message to you. Because I do know that Jesus will be revealed to all the world. And he will bring his reward to those who long for his appearing. So just keep waiting. Think of all the people in Scripture. Think of Job. Keep waiting. Faith outweights the world. One day, faith humbles the world. This is what happens uh, to Joseph's faith, really what happens to Pharaoh. Joseph's um, faith humbled the most powerful man in the world, or one of them. Take a look at, take a look at Pharaoh. Goes to sleep. Pharaoh's living the dream. He's Pharaoh. He's actually a God in the mind of his people. And he goes to sleep and uh, God interrupts him. God's providence, if you will, preaches to him. He doesn't have a choice about it. He doesn't get a preacher. He doesn't ask for help, but just God intervenes with him and challenges every single thing about the core of Egyptian culture. The, the cows, the grain, and the Nile. These are what make a pharaoh great. This is where the entire source of his wealth comes from. The Nile is the land of Egypt. Bread and meat are the sustenance of Egypt, and Pharaoh has it all taken from you or from himself. And then he's bewildered and troubled in spirit. You know, God humbles the nations. I'm, not a, I'm a pastor, not a prophet, but he sure is humbling our nation. Our nation needs to be humbled. How do I know that? Because every nation needs to be humbled. And certainly a nation as powerful as ours needs to be humbled. God's providence... And the faith that holds to it 
will always see the world humbled. Psalm 2, Jesus laughs at the nations who conspire against him. Pharaoh is powerful, but he goes to sleep and wakes up troubled, and his whole world is changed because of a promise God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph. An unknown, essentially unknown people. And what God is doing when he humbles the world, faith waits, faith humbles the world, and faith upends the world. Everything about this story, everything about it, turns the world upside down. Jacob, or excuse me, Joseph, who is the second youngest, actually, of the whole clan, rules the family clan. So the, the family order is usurped in this story. The, the prison order is usurped in this story because he's going to end up ruling over the captain of the guard. And the national order is going to be usurped in this story because the prisoner and the foreigner, the slave, is going to rule all of Egypt. You know, the gospel tells us in... in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, which is a book a man named Paul wrote to the churches in a place called Ephesus, that God exalted Jesus to his right hand where he rules over everything for the sake of the church. He who was rich became poor. He had equality with God, took on the form of a servant. Jesus, who became low, upended the world. He upended the Trinity in a fashion by taking on humanity. In his humility. What I would long for us to know and remember, especially if we're comfortable, is that the world is upside down and backwards. Even when it's working really well for you, I would say, especially if it's working really well for you. I'm not trying to tell you to be discontent or go into the desert and live in a cave. I'm telling you to beware of a world that works. Because Jesus told us that the world actually does not work. Jesus told us that the way the world really is, is that the least of these will be the nearest to him. That the meek will inherit it. The world is upended. So faith, we learn, outweights the world. Faith humbles the world. Faith upends the world. And faith adorns the faithful. I love, I love this. I love the whole robe thing in this story, the whole garment thing. Uh, Joseph is pulled out of the pit really quickly. I'm going to talk about that pit thing in a moment. But he's pulled out real quickly. He's got to shave and clean up and get into the presence the Pharaoh. You can't bring a stinky old prisoner right into the court in front of the Pharaoh. That's not going to work. So he's cleaned up and he has changed his clothes. Remember that? Remember the robe? And then he gets more garments later on. They get even fancier in a minute when Joseph brings it. It's, it's the adornment, the honor. God honors faith. It's what he beautifies his people with. 
But let me talk about the pit. You know, you think like Joseph is like living in a villa as the chief of all the uh, slaves, you know? Don't fool yourself. That's the same word that's used, the same word that's used when his brothers threw him into one. Joseph's in a world of hurt. He might be the, the boss of all the prisoners, but he's still a prisoner. And God brings him up. God, one day God will honor your faith and adorn you just like he did with Joseph, just like he did with Jesus, just like he promised to do with all of us. So, one more thing. I said that faith always serves and never quits. We've talked a lot about not quitting. Let's talk about always serving. That's the theme of Jacob. And that's really the inversion. Jacob does not seem like he has a servant's heart, does he, when he first starts telling his brothers about his dream? Do you get like a servant heart vibe out of, out of Joseph? I keep calling him Jacob. Do you get a servant heart vibe out of, out of Joseph in that first chapter? I didn't. I think he's kind of a jerk. But something happens in the pit. And it's something that our part of the church, the whole church, but I'm in our part, the American evangelical corner of the church, we, we might do well to go into a pit and come out as servants. Because that's what we do. That's what Jesus did. All this honor, all this power, all this wealth, all this history that we possess is like the commission of Pharaoh, the symbols of Pharaoh, the signet ring and robe, um, the ceremony that he installs him with. All of these things are used by Joseph to serve, to serve Egypt and ultimately to serve his people. They were used to serve the prisoners. They were used to to serve Potiphar's house. Think about all the influence and all the money and all the relationships and all the opportunity and advantage represented in this room. I imagine there's a substantial amount of all those things. Always serve and never quit. What are you here for? What are you here for? What's your church here for? Who are you to serve? That's what faith does. It's going to take 10 years to maybe to, to really come to fruition for Joseph. And right now he is probably, he's no longer in a pit. He's probably living a pretty cush life, but he still believes. His faith still doesn't quit. How do we know that? His sons. His sons become part of Israel. You should serve. You should ask yourself, what do I have? What can I touch? Who do I know? Why is all saints here? Why are we here? And who needs our help? That is faith that never quits. 
I told you that uh, my first job was a lot like my, my career job. And, um, you know, there's, there's a lot to that analogy. I mean, I've been everything in that story, including the grumpy manager. I mean, I've been everything. I, I've been the, I have been the uh, rude guests, you know. I've been uh, the guy that didn't show up. I've, I've been the guy that almost quit. Because I did almost quit. I almost quit this job. The only reason I didn't quit, there's two reasons. One, by the time I thought about quitting, I had no marketable skills left. Because I was in my mid-40s, late 40s. And I was like, wow. It was before Uber. So that, like, that wasn't an option. If you ever saw my tools, you would know I couldn't go to Home Depot. No, it was a, it was a, it was a hard time. I'm so thankful I didn't quit. I love what I do. But it's not because of what I do. It's because I've learned to love the God I do it for better. Don't quit. Keep serving. Don't quit. If you're about to quit, if you think you can't believe God anymore for your family, your job, your heart, then reach out to somebody. Go to one of your elders. Go to a friend. Go to a preacher. Because you have one job. Just don't quit. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you please to help us to endure to the end. It seems like such a a burden even. Don't quit. That's my job. Don't quit. Well, it's not because you will never forsake us or leave us. It's you who does not quit. You who gather us under your wings. You who walk alongside us. You who, you who promise not to quit but to finish what you have begun in us. If we can no longer continue to serve and never quit, then, then let us sit still and remember that you always still, even now, are serving us and you will never quit. Amen.